they wouldn't allow me any reading material for 12 years. They took and put me in a cell, five by eight cell, without benefit of any writing material, reading material, uh, radio, TV, non-cellmate for 12 years. Only thing was in that strip cell was a, a face basin where you only cold water, running cold water. You're listening to Reparations in Action here on Black Power 96.3. Uhuru, you're listening to the White Lies Shattered podcast and FM radio show. My name is Brennan McCoy, and today I am hosting White Lies Shattered, which broadcasts weekly on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. White Lies Shattered, also known as Reparations in Action, is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a podcast series exposing the insidious lies we learn as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. We'd like to salute Chairman Amalia Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party for leading the African Revolution and developing the theory of African internationalism and the understanding of the colonial mode of production. African internationalism is the theory and worldview of the African working class that guides the struggle for African liberation, in which we credit for all of the understandings and analysis provided on this podcast. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our weekly podcast. Black Power 96 is not just explaining the world, but changing it. You can get the app for Black Power 96 on Google Play or the Apple App Store and listen wherever you are located. On today's episode, we'll be listening to a 30-minute clip on the Reparations Tribunal of 1982, in which the party officially indicted the United States government with genocide on African people. Afterwards, we will hear from the chairman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, Penny Hess, uh, chair of USM, Jesse Neville, as well as Reparations in Action host, Jamie Simpson, as they analyze this historic tribunal. On November 13th and 14th of 1982, the African National Reparations Organization, a mass organization of the African People's Socialist Party, organized and conducted a world tribunal on reparations for black people. Addressing the question debated across the U.S. today, are African people owed reparations? Listen to the testimonies from this tribunal and you decide. Today, we are initiating a two-day trial of the United States government for crimes it has committed against the black or African population of the United States. Today, we are initiating a two-day process which is remarkable and historic in its implication for the use of international law as a means of addressing the crimes against oppressed people who do not have the benefit of state power and the use of national and international courts which are traditionally only available to those groups who do possess state power to withhold the right to justice and international legality to the powerless, oppressed African people in the United States would be to validate the most cynical concept that might makes right. It would give credence and validity to the awful concept of the right of the powerful to make and enforce international law. 
Such law as that is no law at all. It is accepted tyranny. Therefore, this world tribunal must determine whether international morality might prevail in the interest of the powerless. This tribunal will determine whether, even in the absence of state power, the rights of the oppressed will be recognized as rights which may be respected in the form of applied international law. On November 13th and 14th of 1982, Black people from around the United States and the world came together at an international tribunal in New York to hear evidence, historical, statistical, and personal, on the right of Black people in the U.S. to receive reparations from the U.S. government. Before an international panel of judges and observers representing popular movements in the Congo, Senegal, Barbados, the United States, and Azania, 14 hours of documentation and testimony was presented to support the charge that African people experienced genocide. This was not a mock trial. International law was laid out and legal procedures followed. This international law consisted of charters and treaties passed by the United Nations after World War II to hold governments accountable to the world community. The judges heard the charges, followed the evidence, cross-examined witnesses, and rendered a verdict. Testimony was put forth under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which has been ratified by a majority in the United Nations, but which the United States Senate has refused to ratify for fear of being charged before world courts concerning the cases of Native American and African people in the U.S. The Genocide Convention declares as punishable crimes any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The first testimony came from Dr. Leonard Jeffries, chairman of the Black Studies Department of the City College of New York, who detailed the birth of civilization in Africa and the subsequent impact of the raiding slave merchants. For 40 or 50 years, the Portuguese had been touching the coast of Africa, and they knew the riches of the culture and civilizations that had been developed there. The civilizations of Ife and Benin that produced the art, which is as classical as any art ever produced. The civilization that produced the city-states of Nigeria and the city-states of other parts of Africa. These Portuguese, being land poor, resource poor, and people poor, had to have their mind blown when they got to the Gold Coast. So the Portuguese in 1482 came back to Africa and established a permanent base, which became the beginning of the process of genocide that saw 100 million Africans destroyed. That permanent base was called Elmina of St. George. And after that period, hundreds of slave forts were built along the African coast. In Ghana alone, along a 200-mile stretch, there are the remnants today of 50 slave forts and castles, some of them only a few miles from each other, as the European blood sucked the African continent. In that 50-year turning point of history, when Europe moved from the periphery of world history, from its dark ages, onto center stage, and moved out African and Southern Asian and Indian people, the roots of that which we have to deal with today in terms of the condition of our people are there they come out of the slave trade system, which, as Walter Rodney says, 
went to the development of Europe and the underdevelopment of Africa. In this 50-year period of history, you have the basis of genocide, the basis of religious intolerance, the basis of fascism. But I don't want to leave us historically with a negative note. The last period of history is 1900 to the present. 1900 to the present is the period of the African Renaissance. 1900 to the present is the period of the African Revolution. And Garvey and others understood this. The revolutions in Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau. The revolutions taking place around Anzania and Namibia. The movements in the Caribbean around Grenada, etc. The Cuban Revolution. The struggles of peoples on the streets of Harlem and Bedford-Stuy. These are all part of the renaissance and rebirth of African peoples. And although a genocidal process existed in history, we are reversing that genocidal process by moving into an African revolutionary consciousness. In addition, a historical brief was submitted with documentation of extensive economic research on the amount of wealth stolen from the labor of African people held as slaves in the U.S. Wealth, which was the basis of the U.S. economy for its first 100 years, and which gave birth to the capitalist economic system. Estimates of wealth stolen from African people's labor through the special structures of tenant farming, wage discrimination, and the dual labor market were also made for the years following the abolition of formal chattel slavery. A minimum estimate of the wealth stolen from black people for labor alone, leaving out charges for damages incurred through murder, maiming, and rape, amounted to $4.1 trillion. Joe Mashariki, chairman of the Black Veterans for Social Justice, brought out detailed information on the use of black troops to enforce U.S. power around the world, at the same time that black people are suffering under the rule of that state power in the U.S. The United States government is guilty of mass genocide and degradation against Africans here in America. The economic wealth and development of this country was built on the backs of black slave labor. All persons who enjoy the fruits of the so-called democracy today enjoy it at the expense of black blood, sweat, tears, and lives. As an organization of veterans from World War II to Vietnam War who fought in these wars, our motto is blacks fight no one else's war no more. We have adopted this motto because of our experience in this country. However, this motto doesn't exclude us from fighting our own war. I want to be clear on that. Such as in Anzania, Namibia, Mississippi, or New York. People who know the anti-war movement know that the type of internal chaos that took place in the military which helped to stop the war and that came from people right here in our communities. The whole um, white anti-war movement couldn't get off the ground until blacks refused. More blacks refused to go into the military during the Vietnam War than whites. Eight to two. Evidence was also brought forth under the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which states in part, 
state parties undertake to prohibit and to eliminate racial discrimination in all its forms and to guarantee the right of everyone without distinction as to race, color, or national or ethnic origin to equality before the law, notable the enjoyment of the following rights. The right to equal treatment before the tribunals and all other organs administering justice. The right to security of person and protection by the state against violence or bodily harm whether inflicted by government officials or by an individual group or institution. Testifying on conditions for black people in Southern prisons was Richard Mafundi Lake. Without benefit of any writing material, reading material, uh, radio, TV, non-cellmate for 12 years. Only thing was in that strip cell was a, a face basin where you only cold water, running cold water. There was no bed, it was a concrete slab block. And uh, the only time I came out of that cell was to go to a shower for five minutes. And if you wasn't through showering in five minutes, the water was cut off on you. You didn't have any control of the water. That was for 12 years. And the only way I maintained my sanity was to play mental games with myself. I learned how to play chess without a bolt. I wouldn't allow them to destroy me. I was placed... I think it was 21 days that I was forced to go without bread or water. Uh, I was in a cell, stripped, one a time, sub-zero sub degree weather, and uh, there was no heating, no ventilation. I was forced to lie on that concrete block, and then the guards would come by for additional punishment and throw water on the floor. It would get so cold that the only way I could sleep I would just run in my cell until I was just completely exhausted. And I would just fall out from exhaustion and sleep. You see the, t the little blocks in the toilet tissue? They used to give us three blocks, actually count the blocks of toilet tissue. And I used to take the three blocks of toilet tissue and lie on that cold floor and put it on my chest and psych myself that I was covering myself with a blanket. You know, under severe conditions, a person play all kind of mental games with himself in order to survive. Further evidence on the government's violation of this international convention was put forth by Akil al-Jundi, who was a participant in the Attica Rebellion in New York. On September the 9th, 1971, at Attica State Prison, there had been a unanimous decision by over 1,200 prisoners at Attica and that position was that because of all the racism that had existed at Attica and the prison system within New York State and in the entire country, that it was a need for something to happen. On September the 9th, 1971, we took to the yard 1,281 strong. On September the 13th, 1971, 43 people lost their lives as an outcome of the rebellion. Now, we know that rebellions go on and on at different times, and what they do is they escalate our particular level of struggle. And this particular case raised the question of prisons, prisoners, and the relationship of prisons to black folk, particularly in the wilderness of North America. There is a suit right now that is pending. And this 
civil suit is demanding $2.8 billion from the Rockefeller estate because we remember that the governor at the time of the rebellion was none other than Nelson Orridge Rockefeller. And we want to give to the international body our suit so that the world, so that the world will not forget what happened at Attica. And Afini Shakur, a member of the Grand Jury Project and former defendant in the New York Panther 21 trial in 1969, brought forth extensive evidence concerning COINTELPRO attacks against the Black liberation struggle. My nephew was beginning first grade in 1968, and that was the year of the infamous UFT teacher strike in this city. And here, thousands of children were left without schools, and so people across this city got together and set up alternative programs. The Black Panther Party was very much involved in that, that struggle, and I joined that struggle in 1968. By April of 1969, I was in jail, charged with some 350 felonies, including conspiracy to do just about everything there is to conspire to do. We were all acquitted. The state of New York wasted $1.5 million in trying to um, send us all to jail, but their conspiracy did not end there. And some of them are now political prisoners. It's important for us, however, to begin by understanding what a counterintelligence program really is. A counterintelligence program is a military operation one goal of any counterintelligence program is to neutralize a hostile agent. The United States government considers all elements of the Black Liberation Movement hostile agents. When the counterintelligence program was aimed at the Black Liberation Movement, there was only one heading in which all Black people fell, and that heading it's called Black Hate Extremist Groups. And under that heading fell the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, SCLC, SNCC, CORE, the Black Panther Party, of course, Malcolm X, and anybody that fell any place within those parameters. And that, I believe, covers the general trend existing in any Black family and in any Black community. The United Nations has also adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which declares in part that everyone has the right to a nationality, everyone has the right to education. Education shall be directed to the full development of the human personality and to the strengthening of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. Professor Dell Hunter was demoted from position as Dean of Medgar Evers College in New York for supporting the struggle of African students for control of the institution in the interest of the black community. The way that the black intellectual became utilized was literally not to transmit knowledge, not to discover new information, not to engage in human understanding, but literally to reproduce 
in a very mechanical and a very formal way that information that had been received from the ruling forces. The responsibility, therefore, of anyone who strikes of talking about freedom, liberation, and a revolution is that of creating an antithesis of the present understanding of reality. The idea, the idea, therefore, is for the core of people who have been housed outside of the institutions of higher learning, who, by the way, have usually made more of a major contribution toward the development of black people than those who've been housed inside, okay? The idea is to establish a link and a mechanism so that these individuals have a forum in order to exist and to carry on the information sharing and the understanding that they have. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights also holds that everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. One of the many individual Black people who came forward to give testimony on her conditions of life and right to reparations was Sharon Smith. One of the unique things about Central Brooklyn is that it's the largest Black population in the country, but the majority of that population is made up of women and children. One of the most pressing problems for us as mothers in this city is decent housing. We have a responsibility of providing a decent home for our children. However, it is kind of hard to do that when you're being exploited and oppressed by a criminal landlord, further perpetuated by a court system. I've lived in apartments where, well, the ceilings are always falling in. That's common. Rodents, rats, roaches is a common problem. The cold is a common problem in a lot of buildings that I've lived in in this city. When the temperature was below zero last year, we froze. You have on twice as many clothes inside and you take off clothes to go outside. I was getting a lot of phone calls and letters home from the teachers as such, and he can't be still, my son can't be still, my son is not being productive. And I did not know how to get across to these teachers that if my son go to bed cold and then he wake up cold and he can't wash up efficiently in, in the bathroom that the ceiling is falling in, how in the world is he going to be productive in, in a classroom in a public school of miseducation, which is another story in itself. We go to housing court and on any day of the week, there are loads of people, African people, to be dealing in that system at one time. Something is definitely wrong. I consider that genocide. They're trying to kill our spirits. What it has done is just rise my anger. I want to see justice. I want to see reparations for us. Testimony was brought out concerning the International Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which includes the following provisions. The state parties to the present covenant recognize the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. The steps to be taken to achieve the full realization of this right shall include those necessary for the provision of the reduction of the stillbirth rate 
and of infant mortality and for the healthy development of the child, the creation of conditions which would assure to all medical service and medical attention in the event of sickness. Black healthcare activist Ibrun Adelona testified to the systematic violation of this provision by the United States and state authorities in regards to black people in the U.S. In regards to our struggle for self-determination, we have had to define for ourselves what that means. For us, that means having control over the institutions that affect our lives. It means the ability to define our needs and to have access to resources to develop the social forms that would meet those needs. Generally, throughout the world, infant mortality rates are recognized as one of the most reliable measures of the general health status of a community. Among African people in New York, our rate of infant death is 36.8% greater than that of white New Yorkers. If you compare Manhattan and Brooklyn to Mississippi, you see an even larger discrepancy in the sense that two to three times those numbers begin to appear in other parts of the country. We found that there was a pattern of hospitals being closed in black communities. Now, when you have an understanding of the relationship of business and government in regards to whether or not a hospital stays open, then you understand that when a hospital closes, it is because the government wants that hospital to close. What they do is pull back on the kind of reimbursement that they give to that hospital, so in effect they create a bankruptcy. A total of $10.7 billion was spent in New York City in 1980 for health care expenditures. And $5.7 billion of this was spent on hospital care. Over 50% of that money for New York City, and I'm talking about all five boroughs, went to that string of hospitals in the area that we call Bedpan Alley, which is a predominantly white, middle-class and upper-class uh, community. And we're talking about tax dollars. We're talking about the money that comes from all of us. We're talking about our money is going disproportionately to one sector in regards to the health industry. Following the testimony, the judges retired and determined a unanimous verdict. Speaking on the impact of the tribunal, was Justice Ladipu Solanke, chairman of the National United Movement of Barbados. A people who have faced the horrors as outlined in the testimonies of these two days must congratulate themselves to have the moral fortitude to be here for this historical tribunal. Irrefutable evidence has been brought before this tribunal to indict the U.S. government without a shadow of a doubt. African people in the U.S. are indeed due reparations from the United States government. The crime against African people in the U.S. is without fear of contradiction, the greatest crime in the known history of human civilization. The verdict of the judges was that, one, African people in the U.S. are due reparations from the U.S. government at the amount of $4.1 trillion, damages to be determined at later tribunals. Two, imprisoned black revolutionaries should be granted political prisoner and prisoner of war status based on the Geneva Convention and other United Nations determinations. 
Three, U.S. treatment of Africans in the U.S. represents a serious enough breach of the United Nations Human Rights Charter to justify eviction of the U.S. from the United Nations. And four, the testimony and documentation presented at the tribunal justifies the establishment of a permanent body to monitor U.S. treatment of African people in the U.S. Calling for the Black communities around the United States to take out the verdict of the tribunal and organize chapters of the African National Reparations Organization, Omali Yeshitela, People's Advocate and Chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, summed up the Reparations Tribunal. We've heard testimony, and there has been introduced documentation which shows that it is the oppression of African people here and throughout the world, which is the very foundation, the cornerstone of the existence of this terrible world economic system that causes destruction throughout this earth. Such being the case, it's very clear that if you remove the cornerstone, the building will come tumbling down. Our oppression represents the cornerstone and at the same time, the weakest link in this imperialist country, this imperialist world. And therefore, the judgment which comes from a tribunal such as this is very, very important. If you live in a country or a world that is built on slavery, barbarity, thievery, genocide, the institutions of that society in any place of the world will be there for the purpose of sustaining the enslavement and the genocide. We have set about creating another institution, and this institution is a world tribunal which brought the United States government for the first time in its history to trial for the crimes that it has committed against black people in this country. And this tribunal is, is biased tribunal. It is a tribunal that moves off the assumption that black people must be free. It moves clearly off the assumption that black people must be free and that anything that stands in the way of that liberation must be removed. All right, so now we want to turn to an article that was written September 5th, 2022 by Anne Brown, and it was published on the Mogul Nation website or moguldom.com. And this article is titled, Remembering the 1982 World Tribunal on Reparations, Seven Things to Know. In 1982, the African People's Socialist Party hosted the first annual World Tribunal on Reparations. APSP's chairman, Omalia Shetela, and the APSP organized the first World Tribunal on Reparations to African people in the U.S. on November 13th and 14th, 1982, in Brooklyn, New York. The African People's Socialist Party, or APSP, is an African internationalist party with a focus on reparations. The APSP was formed in May 1972 by the merger of three black power organizations based in Florida, the Junta of Militant Organizations, JOMO, based in St. Petersburg and led by Yeshitela, the Black Rights Fighters, based in Fort Myers, directed by Lawrence Mann, and the Black Study Group, based in Gainesville, led by Kachura Carey. 
In August 2022, several of the APSP's properties were raided by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The raids came as the Justice Department indicted a Russian man living overseas named Alexander Ianov using U.S.-based groups to spread Russian propaganda. Yeshitela said he was zip-tied while his home was raided and denied the FBI's implication that the APSP group was taking orders from Russia. Yeshitela is one of the original co-founders. Yeshitela said the mission of the APSP was to complete the Black Revolution of the 60s. The APSP also leads the Uhuru movement, which is centered around the theory of African internationalism. Yeshitela, a writer and theoretician, also founded the Burning Spear newspaper, the official journal of the APSP. It has been published since 1968. Yeshitela is the author of numerous books and pamphlets, including Vanguard, Advanced Detachment of the African Revolution, and An Uneasy Equilibrium, The African Revolution versus Parasitic Capitalism. Here are seven things to know about the 1982 World Tribunal on Reparations. One, what the tribunal found. The tribunal declared that the U.S. was guilty of stolen labor from African people. The verdict of the tribunal, which was held based on international law that allows an oppressed people to bring their case before the world arena, was that the U.S. is guilty of genocide and the enslavement of African people, which built the wealth of the U.S. Two, tribunal declared what was due. The tribunal found that the debt owed to African people in the U.S. was $4.1 trillion. The amount was explained in the 1983 book Stolen Black Labor, The Political Economy of Domestic Colonialism by Yeshitela. The $4.1 trillion was to be paid by the U.S. to African people based on the wealth accumulated from stolen, enslaved, and underpaid labor of African people. The tribunal demanded, according to the APSP's The Burning Spear newspaper. Three, APSP's reparations platform. The APSP adopted its 14-point platform on September 23, 1979, and one of the points demanded reparations. Quote, we want the U.S. and the international European ruling class and states to pay Africa and African people for the centuries of genocide, oppression, and enslavement of our people. End quote. Stated point 11 by the working platform, according to the party's website. It continued, quote, we believe that Africa and African people are due reparations, just economic compensation, billions of dollars, which must be paid to the organization of African unity or any other legitimate international organization of African people for equitable distribution for the development of Africa. We also believe that reparations must be distributed to the various independent African states dispersed throughout the world and to the legitimate representatives of African people forcibly dispersed throughout the world who have not yet won liberation, end quote. Four, tribunal purpose. The party held the first World Tribunal on Reparations in 1982 in Brooklyn, New York, to indict the U.S. government for its genocide against African people. Five tribunal argument for reparations. The party's world tribunal cited international law, such as the UN's Human Rights Charter on behalf of the colonized, oppressed African population to expose that African people inside the U.S., quote, are a colonized population living under the foreign, hostile domination of the U.S. government, end quote. African People's Solidarity Committee blog reported. Six, 
reparations go beyond slavery. The tribunal pointed out that reparations, quote, are owed for more than the period of chattel slavery in the U.S., but for the ongoing oppression of African people that forms the foundation of the social wealth and opportunity available to all strata of the white population, end quote, according to the African People's Solidarity Committee blog. Seven, reasons for reparations. The tribunal listed the several reasons for reparations. One of the reasons, quote, white people benefit economically, politically, and socially from African people's suffering, enslavement, and oppression. The oppression of Africans makes up the pedestal upon which our lives are constructed. Every wave of landless European workers climbed up the ladder of success at the expense of African people in a system overflowing with wealth and opportunity created by slavery, theft, and genocide, end quote, reported the Burning Spear. So we want to turn now to a discussion of that powerful documentary and For this discussion on the 1982 World Tribunal on Reparations to African People in the U.S., I want to welcome on our returning guest chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville, and chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, Penny Hess. Uhuru! Wow, what an absolutely powerful and just... uh, profound and and emotional uh, documentary that was of the first tribunal with just little snippets of all of the incredible testimony that was there all across um, the spectrum of of every aspect of life of African people in the U.S. And this was, of course, based in Brooklyn. And there were just, you know, just very, very moving some of the testimonies that we heard and the significance of the 1982 First Tribunal on Reparations to African People, which used international law um, led by Chairman O'Malley Chatella's, the People's Advocate, using the Convention and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide and the human rights conventions of the United Nations and the right of African people as the colonized people to bring their case before the world court, um, before the court of the, uh, of international law. This was, this was incredibly profound to hear. Chairman O'Malley Chatella was absolutely brilliant and, and basically summed up at the end of the tribunal that the verdict was in $4.1 trillion of U.S. government guilty of genocide. Political prisoners must be freed from the period of of the um, assault on the African liberation movement of the 1960s and subsequently, and but that the only contradiction that African people face was they did not have the state power to enforce the verdict. It was a very, very powerful documentary. Uhuru, yes, I, I unite 100%. And I think that last point is so important to understand. And as it said in that radio documentary, that this was not a mock trial. This was a, a, a genuine people's tribunal convened by the leadership of the African working class 
anti-colonial struggle. And it was an expression of state power. And you can hear that in every presentation, especially in the presentations given by Chairman Amalia Shatella, that this was the African working class self-government manifesting itself and that the verdict was a legitimate verdict that represented the will of the African working class and that the task of the African People's Socialist Party throughout its existence has been to consolidate and capture and win state power in the hands of African people so that they will have the power to enforce the verdict and win reparations to African people. Uhuru. Uhuru. Yes, uh, some of the some of the testimonies were just profound. Certainly, Mafundi Lake, who was who, who recently or the last few years passed away, who was forced into prison for about thirty years, and he was out right at the time of that. But he was they, they put him back up. He was a an African community organizer in Birmingham, Alabama, and very close to the African People's Socialist Party. But his conditions, 12 years in solitary confinement, often, you know, with no mattress, Mm -hmm. sleeping on the floor, freezing cold weather, with one little piece of toilet paper that he used to pretend that it was a blanket, just the conditions that African people face the brilliant history of Professor Leonard Jeffries, who was talking about what African civilization was and its impact on the world and and what it is today, and so many more. Do you want to say more? And including another um, person of note who who was a part of this tribunal was Afeni Shakur, a uh, former member of the Black Panther Party yes. and Tupac Shakur's mother. Mm-hmm. And then also the, the statement from uh, Job Mashariki mm-hmm. speaking on the Black stroke. Veterans for yeah, Justice. Black Veterans for Justice and the way that it was African veterans who struggled against U.S. war and against the draft and, and calling on African people to refuse to participate in any war that the U.S. government would promote that actually sparked the anti-war movement. So it was, there's so much incredible history contained in that, in that tribunal. Yeah, yeah. Sharon Smith talking yes. about the conditions of housing, Yvonne Adelona, yes. Del Hunter, mm-hmm. professor at Medgar Evers College in, in Brooklyn, Medgar Evers University. It, it's, it is so powerful. And, we want to also let everybody know, all our listeners know, that the book of these testimonies, the, the, the full um, battery of all of the, the testimonies given at that two-day world tribunal, first world tribunal on reparations to African people held in Brooklyn, New York, November 12th and 13th of 1982, uh, presided over by Chairman O'Malley Chatella as the People's Advocate. Um, is this book is called The Verdict is in Reparations Now. It is just being published by Burning Spear Publications. And Jesse, can you tell us where people can order this book? Definitely. Um, Theburningspear.com. You can go there and there's a a store where you can place an order um, for Burning Spear Marketplace. And I definitely encourage people to do that. The, the burningspear.store is the direct link that you can go to. 
and pre-order your copy of the 40th anniversary edition of the report from the 1982 World Tribunal on Reparations. Wow, you know, with uh, this is an excellent place to start this recording um, on on the tribunal for anyone that wants to understand yes. where this reparations demand came from, you know, and I think it just it just flies in the face of the idea that there's more research that needs to be done before right. uh, it's determined that African people are owed reparations. I mean, the, the legitimacy of this tribunal, all the different experts who are testifying and the, the absolute moral weight of like the chairman's concluding statement is just so profound. Yes, it is. The party is fighting and winning the African liberation movement. African revolution is winning. It is pushing back the state and the terror that Chairman O'Malley Chatella is facing for his courageous and brilliant stand as, among many other things, the father of the reparations demand, making reparations a household word, which was his goal in, in 1980 before anybody else even understood what that word is. Just, uh, just an incredible testimony for the struggle of African people for power, for self-determination, continuing today, continuing through to impact this very moment that we live in. Uhuru. Uhuru. Well, Chairwoman Penny Hess and Chair Jesse Neffel, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this discussion on the 1982 World Tribunal on Reparations to African People. This has been another episode of Reparations in Action. Thank you for joining us. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. We'd like to thank our team of volunteers. Our sound engineer is Aaron Loss, who also composes our theme music. Our research coordinator is Alex Pletcher. Reparations in Action is produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson out of the Black Power 96 studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Burning Spear Media Director Akile Anayi and the station that is not just explaining the world, but changing it, WBPULP St. Petersburg, also known as Black Power 96, and the station manager, Mr. Eddie Maltzby. If you like what you've heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to join our volunteer team, please email us at ria at blackpower96.org. That's ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to Chairman Omalia Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party, without whose relentless leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible.